Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Black Lives Matter and the police. So, Richard, since you and I have last spoken, um, three incidents really that have sort of convulsed the nation, two involving black men being uh, shot to death by police, one a case in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, one in the Minneapolis suburbs, and then a few days afterwards at a Black Lives Matter protest in Dallas, a sniper opening fire and killing five police officers, injuring a total of about a dozen. And Richard, this has been all the country's really been able to talk about the past several days with good reason. And on the Black Lives Matter side of the argument, and this is um, in lighter tone, something that you heard President Obama reference as well in giving a speech afterwards. There's been a lot of focus, even though everybody's decrying what happened in Dallas. There's been a lot of focus on the underlying issue of racial disparities in how police deal with minorities. And the phrase that is being thrown around in a lot of quarters is institutional Racism Is that a fair way to characterize as a general matter the relationship between American law enforcement and minority communities? No, I think it's a rather unfair way to characterize the relationship, and let me see if I could explain to you why it is. The general arguments that you hear often are very imprecise, are to the effect that if you look at the global system here, there, and the other place, what you do is you find, for example, a higher arrest rate for blacks than you do for whites for a variety of offenses, higher rates of stops, and so forth. Um, and so there's no question that there is some form of disparate impact. But that's very different from institutional racism where what you do is you think of a situation where police chiefs get together, uh, major political figures get together, and their job is to figure out how it is that they can maintain an institutional system in which they oppress various kinds of minorities. So if you want an illustration of what's an institutional relationship, there is no question that there are institutionalized affirmative action programs programs in the United States at virtually every level of life. And it's not real hard to find them. I mean, you look at university policies on admissions, scholarships, promotions, and hiring, and it's all there. You start looking in the business sector, it's the same thing. You start looking at the enforcement policies of the EEOC and so forth. All of this stuff is completely overboard, open board. Everybody understands what it is, and their attitude is that it is justified. Um, if there were anybody today who ever came out in favor of something which sounded like institutional racism, uh, their half-life in a public job is zero point zero seconds. You can't get them to do it. So I think, in effect, that it's a rather inappropriate uh, kind of comparison. And disparate impact cases are extremely difficult to judge because you always have to ask whether or not the naked statistic has to be corrected for other factors like, for example, the frequency of underlying wrongful conduct. Let's explain that concept a little bit more for our listeners. People who are not immersed in the law may not be familiar with the phrase disparate impact and how it's used in cases like this. Explain what the term means. Sure. I mean the original attack on the – um, racial practices in Jim Crow in the South was an attack on institutional racism. And as I said, it doesn't take a great genius to figure out when it's done. It's on the public laws and books everywhere throughout the land. And so the initial belief was that you have to stop this explicit disparate treatment, the way in which things are done overtly under the law. 
And then what happens is people start to say, well, if these people are such terrible racists and we ban them from doing this overtly, they will seek covert situations. And that means what we have to do now is find out whether there's a disparate impact. And if so, can we then infer from that impact the fact that there was a bad motive? And so much to the surprise of everybody, in 1971, in a case called Griggs against Duke Power, the Supreme Court said that to use, for example, a uh, various kinds of tests, um, aptitude tests of one sort or another, uh, to decide whether or not to hire various employees, uh, the fact that the test made no reference to race in any sense meant that if it had a disparate impact, you can still invalidate the test. So what happens is a disparate treatment situation, a business can stop. It just stops doing it. But the moment you start having this disparate impact type situation, every practice that you engage in is something which is a potential sort of a disparate impact and therefore the source of some kind of potential liability. And I think it's fair to say in the Civil Rights Act context, disparate impact expands the scope of liability a hundredfold. If you now start talking about disparate impact as the grounds for institutional racism, you can see the parallel take place. Virtually everything that you do, if the impact is, dis- is disparate, can now be regarded as a form of racism. You mentioned Jim Crow there as an example of actual institutional racism. As, as tense as everything is right now, Richard, do we run a risk of understating the actual racial progress that America has made over the last 50 years or so? Well, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember Brown v. Board of Education, um, certainly old enough to not only remember but to have debated the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And I mean the differences that you see in behaviors today are simply remarkable compared to what they were. Uh, and certainly even today at the social level, uh, you see a kind of easy familiarity between whites and blacks, which was just inconceivable in 1954 and probably in 1964. I just recently went to an interracial wedding and uh, two of the bridesmaids couples were uh, parts of interracial couples. And as best I can tell, everybody seemed to have a fine time and there was no sign of any tension whatsoever. Uh, this would have been a hugely different event um, if it had been done 50 years ago uh, because at that particular point, the older generation was essentially somebody who believed in a lot of these racial verities, so-called, and were prepared to act upon them. And I remember as a kid of 21 or so just wondering how it was that my attitudes, which I did not regard as particularly enlightened, were so utterly different from those who were 30 and 40 years older than me. And particularly when you started to look at what happened in the South when they had the killings of Gurner, Schwedrin, and Cheney. I mean, it was just a completely different world. You go back and you look at the march in Marquette Park and you see the abuse that was hurled at Martin Luther King. It's incomprehensible that anybody would do anything like that today. And, you know, this has been a huge effort on the part of large numbers of people of both races. And one of the reasons why one gets so frustrated about the entire event is that everything that somebody says should be done to some extent already has been done. What are you supposed to tell Dallas? Maybe they should hire a black chief, police chief. 
No, they've already done that. Maybe they should integrate their force. No, they've already done that. Maybe they should give sensitivity training with respect to the question of racial differences. No, they've already done that as well. Uh, So what happens is it's like pushing on a string at this particular point to figure out anything else that will happen. And so that leads me to the following rather dismal kind of situation, which is everybody's talking about unity in this particular situation. Well, the country is on matters of mayhem and murder, whether it's by the police or anybody else, unified to 99.999%. But it takes only one Micah Johnson to shatter that unity and simply getting everybody else in the middle to say, no, we will never, never murder anybody, which they never would do anyhow, is not going to stop us from having the next outlier come up. On the police side, it's much more difficult because the police are authorized to use force where citizens are not. And so now the question is not whether force was used, but whether the force was unauthorized. And it's extremely difficult to get real handles on that. And so whenever you start seeing one of these police cases, the first thing you have to do is to say, I don't have any idea of what went on. I know that there are thousands upon thousands of stops, some of which are quite tense, in which no violence or killing erupts and then it turns out you get two unrelated incidents and all of a sudden the entire nation starts to get into a frenzy. It's extremely difficult when you have thousands upon thousands of cases in the mix to get the error rate down to zero. And so no matter what you do, you're going to see one or another police case and even then once you see it, it's very difficult to figure out how you evaluate it. So when you do this, you have to avoid rushing to judgment. I can think of too many cases in my own life where the initial impressions have turned out to be wrong. To that point, Richard, one of the things that the shooting in Minnesota and the shooting in Louisiana had in common is that both of them had video attached to them. And on one side of the argument, you have people saying, look, this is great. This is a new accountability measure. We have the ability in a way we didn't in the past for people to record these incidents, to record these confrontations. On the other hand, you have people who cite what's what's being called the Ferguson effect, basically the idea that cops are being uh, a little less aggressive than they might be in intervening and potentially difficult cases because they don't want to be on one of these videos and have it taken out of context. So on net, the social media aspect of that of this, is it a force for good or a force for ill? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I've been asked to sign a report um, by the Constitution practice dealing with the use of police cameras. And this is my basic take. There is no way that anybody ever could think of a way of stopping private recordation of these events from taking place. And in fact, if you think the Tsarniev brothers sitting there in Boston during the marathon, it was the cameras at Macy's that brought them down rather than official cameras. Uh, So you're going to always get the unofficial cameras, which means that it's even more important that you get the official cameras as well. And so if you start looking at the two types of situations and you look at the Sterling situation, I mean, I was just horrified. This man seems to be subdued. The policeman reaches into his holster, pulls out a gun, and without warning in any short, just shoots two bolts in the back of his head. Now, he may know something that I did not know, and I'm always willing to let somebody speak before I rush to judgment, but boy, I would be amazed if that one would be reversed. But in the other case, there was no official camera. And then what you do is you have a situation where it picks up backwards, as it turns out, um, by a camera after the man has been shot. 
And so you don't see the whole events. You hear some of the audio. And obviously everything depends upon her account of what happened prior to uh, the actual shooting. Uh, this was not a shooting by a white officer. It was a Hispanic officer, as we know. And so now, in effect... What, how do we reconstruct that? That's much more difficult to do. And the last thing I want to have is fragmentary private videos of very mediocre quality out there, which can easily be misconstrued. I would want to have an official version. So if the officer had something out there, um, it would be really very much more instructive. Now, as I wrote in my column on the Hoover site, I did read some accounts which said this was not for a broken taillight, that there had been an identification which he seemed to match of somebody who had recently held up a convenience store in the neighborhood. And so it was a different kind of arrest altogether. I am a professor of law, as I like to say. I am not a professor of facts. And so I just don't know what happens. Uh, but it seems to me, having watched the full cycle go through with Michael Brown and with Trayvon Martin, is that in these cases, caution rather than outrage is the order and that it should be done against the background, not that we have so much left to do. I think the background is we have done institutionally just about anything that somebody can think about. And so when you listen to somebody like Hillary Clinton say, I'm going to reform the criminal justice system, until I hear particulars, what I do is I regard it as a condemnation without particulars, which is going to essentially do two things. It's going to inflame the police by thinking that they're now being picked on this, which is not a good thing, and it will embolden those people who are against the police to start to resist them when they're trying to make ordinary arrest. And that's the Ferguson effect. Uh, the number of murder rates in the United States in major cities is up very substantially. Anyone who wants to know this for real should always consult with what Heather McDonald has done on all of these particular figures. Uh, but these are pretty substantial, and I don't think they could be dismissed as blips. And it certainly is the case that police will be reluctant, but Troy, I don't think it's because of the cameras. I think it's because of the crowd resistance that they are likely to face and the fear that an effort to particularly arrest one person may trigger some kind of violence which they're going to be ill-equipped to deal with. You mentioned the way that Hillary Clinton has handled this. What do you make of the rhetorical tack that President Obama has taken over the last week or so? Well, I've always been completely disappointed with the president and the way in which he speaks. Um, his great rhetorical still is to always be even-handed with respect to the two sides on this issue. And, you know, I think that even if the Sterling killing was as terrible as I think it was, harder to say that with respect to the Castile killing and so forth. But when you have a running sniper going up and saying, I want to kill white people, I want to kill white officers, I want to kill Jews and so forth, it's a completely different order. And, you know, I don't think there's anybody in the Black Lives Matter group of a position of authority who would approve of that particular statement. But what I want to see from them is as stern a condemnation of the individual cases as you can. It is not enough, in my view, under these circumstances to say, well, our demonstration was peaceful. And that's not the same thing as saying, and this act is horrendous. The president said that, but it turns out that the others did not. So, Richard, final question that I'll ask you, because of the issues we're talking about today, but not exclusively because of them, this involves sort of the broader political climate too, there have been a lot of comparisons in the press in recent months of the political environment of today to the political environment in 1968, kind of a, a time of American disunity and sort of fractiousness. What do you make of those comparisons? 
Well, I think they're very different. I'm, I lived through as a student and as a young law professor the whole thing in 1968 and, and, and the deepness of the resentment and the breadth of the resentment was a combination of both the war in Vietnam on the one hand and the civil rights situation on the other which was brought to a head in 1970 with the Kent State type of situation and that was a much more broad spread kind of resentment. If you look at the crowds that are out there now, these are not tens of thousands of people marching with Black Lives Matter. Uh, they're much smaller, much more extreme groups and I don't think they have anything like the broad level of public support uh, that the others have. It's also, I think, in one sense more troublesome that this may well be a little bit more polarized. There's no question that race relations in the United States are less congenial at an abstract level than they were before. More whites reporting dissatisfaction with blacks and more blacks reporting dissatisfaction with respect to the whites. Uh, there's talk of a chasm. I don't think it's quite that bad. Uh, but there certainly is a lot of anxiety. But I don't think it comes up to the fever pitch uh, that you had in 1964-1968 because there are very few people um, who are believers of organized segregation, which, of course, was the battle that you were fighting with the Civil Rights Act. I mean, could you imagine the Republican Party under Donald Trump now decides that it will not seat any delegation that contains black members? Well, that was what Mississippi tried to do in 1964 with Manny Lou Hamer, if you remember. Maybe it was 68. Um, but it was, I think it was 64. You know, these were huge racial battles and nobody could understand what was going on on both sides. We don't have that. Um, we've made enormous progress on these issues. We still have a lot of rough edges to go. But in the olden days, I think anybody who thought about it thought that the critics were by and large right. At this particular point, I think the majority of Americans uh, think that Black Lives Matter has pushed the issue way over the top and that the problem about the president is he's not forceful enough against the simple – in favor of the simple proposition that nobody, no matter what the righteousness of their cause, should be able to take the force of law and put it into their own hands. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.